0: welcome to the uncomfortable conversations podcast the untold stories of the kundalini yoga 3ho community i'm your host guru nishan i was born and raised in this community and our community and the people of our community matter to me and so i started this podcast and i want to thank everyone who's listening and sharing the podcast I wanna invite you to donate to the podcast at gurunishan.com slash uncomfortable conversations. And as I do on every beginning episode, I wanna share the intentions for why I started this podcast. Number one, to break the veil of silence that has long permeated and continues to strangle the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community in the name of neutrality. Number two, to validate and help clarify the complex feelings of those who have joined this lifestyle, were born and raised into it, and or who have practiced or taught kundalini yoga. Number three, to encourage active listening to uncomfortable conversations from our community as a revolutionary act of self and collective healing. Number four, to let survivors know that we see them, we believe them, we love them, and we will fight for their truth to be addressed. Number five, to let teachers who are denying, gaslighting, or spiritually bypassing know that what they are doing is willfully ignorant and re-traumatizing victims. Number six, to illuminate the inherent racism, homophobia, cultural appropriation, and exploitation that perpetuates the teachings, 3HO lifestyle, and overall community ethos. Number seven, to stop the perpetuation of gaslighting and victim shaming by naming it for what it is. Number eight, to dismantle internalized shame, guilt, toxic positivity, and light washing mentality. Number nine, to honor all of the parts of ourselves that have been forgotten or silenced. Number 10, to honor each and every body that has come through our community, both named and unnamed. Number 11, to encourage people to do their own research, process their own emotions, get somatic therapy and other therapy and other support as needed. Draw your own conclusions and be critical thinkers rather than just blindly follow anyone. Please remember that your story matters. Please share it when you're ready. We're here to listen and to support you. I wanna welcome today's guest. Her name is Cable Wright. She came into 3HO in the late 90s. She met and became a student of Yogi Bhajan when she was 20 years old and spent the majority of her 20s and 30s working in the 3HO community. She was one of the founding owners of Yoga Yoga, opening and managing multiple yoga centers and living in Guru Grace's ashram in Austin, Texas. Later, she became the director of Yoga Phoenix, the 3HO Yoga Center in Phoenix, Arizona, and was the assistant director of 3HO Foundation of Arizona. Cable was a KRI teacher trainer as well as doing work for kri she was part of 3ho communities in austin texas espanola new mexico and phoenix arizona she had an arranged marriage now amicably divorced and and had two children while in 3ho cable's relationship with 3ho began to change around 2010 and was a gradual and personal process but she still holds close, meaningful connections with family and community established in her 3HO years. She currently lives in Phoenix, Arizona, where she's finishing graduate school and raising her two children. I wanna welcome Cable on our podcast today. Thank you for being here.
1: Thanks for having me, John. Um, and thanks for doing this podcast and Thanks to everybody who shared their story so far and everyone who's shared a story in the Olive Branch Report or any other format. Um, All of these stories have been so important for more people than you can even imagine. Um, It's definitely been helpful for me in um, helping me to understand more layers of my own story. Every time I hear someone else's story, there's there's things I understand more about my own. And uh, these stories are such an important part of the healing process as I think we're all in this really big process of um, uncovering things that were hidden or repressed or bringing conscious things that were unconscious, even in ourselves. So the more we talk about it, the better. Yes. And um, <laughs> yeah,
0: I can't agree more. I can't agree more. And in full transparency, I would just want everyone to know that Cable's my uh, sister-in-law. And uh, so my brother. family. We're family. And, we're family. <laughs> and so it's, uh, I just want to honor you for your process and um, and your commitment to your family and to, to your own truth all these
1: years. Thank you. Um, I I also wanna acknowledge that it's um, there's a lot of complexity in all of these conversations. I've heard you say that a lot in the podcast and I appreciate that because it is very complex because I know in my own story, there's so much that's beautiful and healing and so many people that I love and you know, still I'm connected to for my 3-H-O time. And then there's also these other aspects that were clearly damaging or manipulative. And for some people, straight up abusive. Now we know these stories where there was blatant abuse. And so I think that's another important part of the healing process is to acknowledge all of that for us to be able to have these conversations that, that make space for all of it. And um, even in my own experience, I I do not claim that I understand <laughs> my own experience um, and much less anybody else's at this point in time. It's still continuing to uh, be sorted out and I'm continuing to understand more about it all the time. So um, I just kind of had to accept that whatever I say today is not going to be complete. It's not a complete understanding. There's still a bazillion question marks that I have about all of it Yes, and it's tricky because Um, we were taught that everything had a spiritual reason. And uh, if we didn't understand what was happening or if something felt off, uh, that it was because there was something off in us that, you know, there was a a spiritual master who of course knew everything could see the destiny and could see the karmas. And uh, if, if we didn't get it, it was just because we didn't get it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that that's tricky to unpack those things. And I have noticed also that there was um, very much this idea that if you believed any accusations of anything, it was a betrayal. And as I was contemplating what I wanted to talk about today, I noticed that still in me, even all these years later, the fear that it is a betrayal to speak about it. Mm. And there are even still people today that that tell me that I'm wrong to speak about it. Um, Fortunately, there's a lot of support that I'm really grateful for, uh, but there are still people saying that it's wrong to speak about it. And uh, I've come to find that in me, it feels like more of a betrayal not to speak about it, especially with um, the people who have reported abuse. And I want to say right now at the beginning to anyone who experiences Abuse in this community. I want to tell you that I believe you and I support you, and your stories are so important to all of us. And I'm so grateful you're telling them. And also that I am personally sorry if if my inability to see things or understand things uh, to recognize the red flags contributed to anyone's pain. Uh, I want to recognize that I I likely did. Um, participate in things that perpetuated it. And I I am sorry about that. And I uh, am just so grateful for the people who have had the courage to talk about it in the midst of like a very challenging um, atmosphere to speak about those things. Yes. Uh, so that felt important for me to say to everyone who has experienced abuse. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Uh, there's a a friend of mine uh, reminded me of a quote that I feel like is useful for for this community, perhaps. Um, It's most often uh, said to be from Mark Twain, though there's some confusion about whether he actually said it or not, but it's still a good quote. (laughs) Um, And it's, it's easier to fool people than to convince them that they've been fooled. And I think that's been the case in this community. It, you know it's taken so long for us to be able to have these conversations. So many years. Exactly. And it's just a it's a long process for some people. Um so I just felt like that was uh relevant. Thank you. <laughs> um I, I do have uh I know I'm just going at it, huh? <laughs> I love
0: it. I, I, I love have... it. I love it. <laughs> you've been listening you've been allowing yourself to unravel and unpack and realize it's a kind of an unending complexity and I appreciate where you're going. So I'm just gonna let you keep doing it.
1: All right, thank you. Uh, Yeah, I had, I put together some themes that I wanted to be sure to touch on. Um, You know, there's so many things we could talk about in all of this, like they would have to be um, I don't know 10 episodes or something just to just to talk about the topics, but I picked a few that I wanted to touch on in at least in some way today. Um, the first one, which I've heard you talk a lot about, and plenty of people are talking about it, is that I do feel like it is important for us to acknowledge that this was a cult. And I I say that because it took me a long time to be able to accept that word, even though I kind of started moving away from things like 10 years ago. So quite a while uh, really was in the last year that I was able to uh, admit that it's a cult. I mean, it's, it's pretty clear that the definition of cult, it's not see that's what it was, but um, I still was very resistant to calling it that. um, And I do feel like that's important uh, because until we name it, we can't, Address our feelings about it, and there's very complex feelings about having been in a cult. <laughs> um, it's uh, I, I notice in myself that there's there's shame and there's embarrassment, and I you know I had this idea that anybody who was in a cult was probably like stupid or like naive or something, and then I look at our community and it's full of intelligent people, and um, so it's kind of had to shift my assumptions about like who is in a cult and and what it looks like, um, to recognize it in the community that we were part of. Um, but I do feel it's an important part to, to name it and to then be able to uh, look at our own feelings about that having been the case. Yeah. Um, another thing, which again, this is talked about in all kinds of ways is that uh, we did give our power over to Yogi Bhajan, but we also I think we're manipulated to give our power over to Yogi Bhajan and and an important aspect of that is choice and consent. And um, I comforted myself for a long time, um, again, until even somewhat recently, uh, thinking that I had made choices, that uh, these were my choices, I chose to have an arranged marriage, I chose to do whatever I did. And I've come to realize as I've processed it more that the choice and consent piece of it is very tricky. Mm. And so there's the the part about there being a person who we believed had the the right information and the, the right vision to know what the things were that we should do and that we should trust that if we wanted to do it the right way and the best way. But then there's all these other pieces, too, where uh, on your compliance, you following the things, like your acceptance and your belonging in your community, and in some cases, your family, which is huge, um, if your acceptance is based on compliance. And then also uh, the piece of our Belief that our ability to progress spiritually, to be healthy and to be happy was based on doing these things. So that's also based on compliance. And then for many of us, our careers were tied up into it. So our ability to progress in our careers was based also on compliance. And all of that together creates a very tricky situation to say that it's a choice because there is, there's one way and that's the way. Uh, so that. To say that we had choice, it's it's a little bit tricky. <laughs> um, well, I think that ties right back into your earlier
0: uh, notion that it's really important to examine being in an a cult and what it means to be a member of a high demand group because you can't actually dissect layers of ourself like you're talking about, layers of our choices or our compliance if we haven't made a definitive line that says, everyone's susceptible to a cult it doesn't make me wrong it doesn't make me shameful it doesn't make me bad you know listening to Jyoti Ma's episode which was I want to say number 16 really helps to give clarity that every single one of us are susceptible so I think you're just you're you're pointing out such important things for the healing process for any one of us to begin to unravel
1: yeah, it's a lot. It's it's just it's continual. <laughs> um, another thing that you've spoken on quite a bit that I've really appreciated and it has meant a lot to me. And I want to acknowledge it as well is the, the aspect of spiritual superiority and appropriation, which encompasses so many things like just a ton of things. Uh, but the, the thing that I wanted to make sure to mention here is. Um, the way that we were taught and believed that our way of doing Sikhism was superior and, uh, you know, more pure, more correct than other Sikhs. And, um, you know, that's another thing. I am so sorry that I bought into that and that I, um, contributed to that. Um, that's been a huge thing to, to realize over time, like how gross that is. Like, we, we thought that we had information that was uh, was more correct and we're acting on that but I, you know I see that now and that like that's ridiculous. <laughs> it's ridiculous and it's gross. So I just want to acknowledge that um, and thank you for speaking on it so much in your podcast I, I'm really grateful it's being addressed. Oh gosh, there's so many things. <laughs> Yeah. um <laughs> uh, another thing is hierarchy and division of different levels of teachers uh, and especially versus students and that often that hierarchy depended on you know how much you were buying into everything how much you were doing all the stuff um, and how well you could look the part and a lot of that actually, I feel like came down to whether you had money to do the things, and that's a complicated piece as well. That like all of this stuff costs money. You either have to have it, <laughs> or you have to go into debt, which is kind of what I did. <laughs> um, so you know, there's this hierarchy that's that's um, kind of complicated, and then there's a lot of elements into like what even makes it possible to move through the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing which I want to talk about, um, I'm. I have a little bit in my stories about this um, is, at least the time that I was in there um, in 3HO, uh, older men in particular had uh, frequently, frequently had the role of a spiritual teacher or healer or somehow some kind of spiritual representation and that that gained them a certain level of trust in the community. Um, that gave them access to younger women that uh, they probably wouldn't have had otherwise. And you know, I I experienced this a lot myself, especially at the beginning uh, when I came in and I thought everyone was holy. <laughs> and, um, yeah. you know, I was just like looking at everyone, like, look at all these holy people and all of these um, amazing healers and um, frequently that would get turned into like a situation of you know some guy creeping on me, which always was like a weird mind bend for me, something I didn't expect. And I wonder how much it happened to other young women as well. Um, it seemed like there was protection for them because they were held in a trusted position, but there wasn't really protection for young women in a community-wide sense. There may have been individuals that were willing to address it, but as a community, it wasn't being addressed. Um, there's a couple more things. Uh, one is the culture of taking credit for other people's work. That was pretty common, um, not just with Yogi Bhajan, but throughout the community. And for making money off of people who were paid low wages or who were um, doing seva, which seva, selfless service, is a beautiful concept in this community. I, I love it and appreciate it, but I think it was exploited often. Mm-hmm. that people did save it and it made money for other people um, i'm not going to say a whole lot about that but i just wanted to acknowledge that um, i saw it happen to a lot of people um i experienced some aspects of of those things myself and so i just want to say that it happened and then the last thing i want to touch on is um inconsistencies in general, um, inconsistencies in like what was taught as the ideal versus what was actually happening, especially behind the scenes. Uh, But I feel like a big way this was happening was in terms of sexuality, Uh, the repression and judgment and control of sexuality, uh, different rules for different people, definitely very heteronormative. There was not a lot of space for anything that was not hetero. so not very welcoming in the community but also just sexuality in general there was like some very weird mixed messages that i think impacted people um you know especially now that we have the stories of sexual abuse happening behind the scenes so um it's like controlled and repressed on one side and then coming out sideways and in other ways so um that's a whole thing that i feel like probably impacted people and um, so those, a, are my, those are my themes that I wanted to make sure. Thank you. Oh, sorry, thank
0: go ahead. The, no, thank <laughs> you for the list of themes that you're going to cover as you share your story. I think that's excellent <laughs> framing for us. And I just on that last point about um, the sexual repression coming out sideways, what I hear you saying is that years ago, when you were in 3HO, that y- there was one outward expression of like trying to control sexuality and being modest and being graceful and having this whole narrative and yet behind the scenes or sideways was infidelity or lots of like weird manipulative sexual behavior whether it was pedophilia or whether it was other sleeping around and and I can't agree more because as a child I remember growing up around that. There was hyper control and slut shaming and control hyper sexuality controlling how we dressed, what was graceful, and yet behind the scenes, people were sleeping with each other. The, the, the older men thing you're talking about, sleeping with the young students, using healing sessions as ways to get access to them. And this still is happening today. We're having stories coming forward of this currently happening like a formula that has been duplicated. And knowing what we know now with the abuse of Yogi Bhajan yeah. it literally is a formula, as we can tell. And it's continually being duplicated through this older wise men system, as well as all the other themes you've brought up from appropriation to hierarchy to uh, to free labor to on and on. So thank you for that frame. Couldn't agree more.
1: Exclamation point. Emoji. <laughs> and yeah thank you yeah thanks for elaborating on the the sexual repression piece like that it's just weird there's there's so many weird aspects it's
0: horrible and for us to see and understand and comprehend and feel the level of sadistic abuse that has actually been in the ethos of our community. It's not just infidelity, it's not just sleeping around. There's other levels levels of very manipulative, predatory abuse patterns that are infused in the community in and of itself, whether it's conscious or unconscious. So thank you for speaking to this, it's really important. Um,
1: yeah, thank you. Um... So that's what I had for that. And then I was just going to share some things about my story. If, if Yeah. What, to... what
0: I what I'd love is like you gave us a frame of the different topics that I that I'm sensing was a part of your experience. And so now tell us, bring us back and walk us through your story or whatever you want to highlight of your experience. OK, great.
1: Um, Well, I, I went to my first yoga class in 1996 uh, when I was 19 years old. And I was very, uh, I was very depressed throughout my youth, had really hard teenage years, but I I definitely like had a lot of depression and uh, had tried lots of things to uh, get help, but nothing really helped very much. And the day that I was going to my first yoga class, I was definitely very depressed. I was actually uh, pretty suicidal that day. And... I wouldn't have gone to the class except that I had asked a friend to register with me and we'd already paid and I didn't want to leave her hanging so I went and I, I did the breathing and I did the movements and then when I left the class I felt okay like I didn't want to die which was profound for me at that time to um, in such a short period of time go from like being pretty suicidal to um, feeling like I was okay and I could carry on. So it was huge for me and it was very helpful. And I, I started going to classes as much as I could and, and doing yoga at home as well. And in uh, 97, I went to my first summer solstice. I, I didn't even know what a Sikh was when I went to summer solstice. Um, I, I was traveling with some friends from Austin And we went to Ojo Caliente, the hot springs in New Mexico, where a lot of people go before or after solstice. And I was um, in one of the pools, and uh, a guy who was second generation, um, for those who don't know, that's um, just somebody who was raised in this community, like I I met him in the pool and he asked me what I was doing in New Mexico or something and I said I was going to summer solstice yoga camp (laughs) and uh, he said do you know what a Sikh is (laughs) and um, I was like no and he tried to fill me in he was like I was raised in this community and he tried to tell me like what I was about to step into but um, I still had no idea like I showed up at solstice and it was unlike anything I'd ever experienced in my life, like a, a whole different reality. Um, but I loved it and I, um, I wanted to be part of it. And I, uh, like, I couldn't wait to put a turban on. I was like, get this turban on me. <laughs> and, um, I, uh, asked for a spiritual name and like after that solstice, I was just all in mm. and, uh, I I came back, I think it was like a little over a month later, I came back to New Mexico for the 81 Facets of the Mind course, which uh, Yogi Bhajan was lecturing in every night in that course. Um, And I ended up having my first appointment with him uh, during that visit. And anytime I was having an appointment with him, like that time or any, any time after, I was always afraid he was going to yell at me and like talk about what an idiot I was because we knew he did that. Like everybody knew that he yelled at people and like called them an idiot. Mm. Um, so like that we knew that happened and it was just kind of like, he's a Saturn teacher. He's kind of hard on people sometimes. So I was always afraid that was going to happen. Um, but he didn't, Yell at me um, he was always either very kind and fatherly, um, like a father figure to me um, or very charming. Um, he definitely could be super charming um, or just flat and dismissive, like you know nothing um, so those are usually the sides that I saw um, but when I went to my my first appointment with him, as I remember as I was walking towards him, it felt like um, entering in kind of a, an, a bubble of, of altered state. Uh, it's kind of hard to explain, but I always felt it with him and I've felt it with other people too. Whereas I walked towards him, I felt altered. I, it, was, it was harder for me to like, in my body. And um, we talk about it sometimes like the um, sphere of influence that some people have. And I, I think a lot of people in powerful positions have this where like one aspect of it is the entourage that's around them that creates a scene and informs everybody of like how you're supposed to act and what position this person has. And what the reality is around this person. So there's that aspect, but to me, it also feels like there's some kind of energetic component to it, which I don't, I still don't understand what that is because I actually have felt it with other people before. Um, but it's, um, that's a tricky thing too, is that, I, I mean, I always felt somehow altered or out of body around him. And um, I don't know what that was. So I did feel that as I, as I walked towards him, like this kind of altered space. um, And we talked about various things in this first appointment, but he said, you have the purity to be a saint, go be a saint. And, you know, of course he said stuff like that all the time to everybody. Like that's just how he talked. But I, um, I really took it to heart. And I was like, yeah, I want to do that. (laughs) Um, So I like, I was, I wanted to do it. And, um, and he told me to write him letters every week. Which I did for years. I wrote him letters, most embarrassing letters. I don't, you know, I was in my early twenties, um, but I did it for years and um, I would get letters back uh, that the secretaries would send on his behalf. However, however the letters happened. Um, and I, I, really loved the devotion aspect of the teacher-student uh, relationship. I, I love devotion. I'm all about devotion, so I, um, I, went into it pretty easily. Like the experience has taught me that maybe I need to like rein it in sometimes, and you know, be selective about where I throw my devotion around. So I did uh, learn things about it. <laughs> um, and I was like all about liberation too. Like I, uh, that that teaching that you can uh, liberate yourself and seven generations behind you and seven generations in front of you. Like I was, I was in it for that. Like I was like, I'm gonna liberate my lineage. I'm gonna help other people liberate themselves. Like, you know, I was in <laughs> and I was serious about it. I was like willing to do the work and the teachings did give me structure. Uh, you know there were answers for everything like you know from how to dress to what to eat to you know how to take a shower how to have sex like everything you know there was an answer for everything Mm -hmm. and I think at that Mm -hmm. point in my life it was like that kind of structure was helpful for me Um, I mean I did notice weird things of course but I I just focused on what was helping me and I um, I like internalized anything that I felt conflict about. I just, I, I felt like it was my problem, uh, that it wasn't a problem with the community, it wasn't a problem with the teacher, it was my problem, you know, something I needed to fix in myself if I felt a conflict about anything. And I, I think a lot of us that came to this community um, had traumatic backgrounds, had abuse backgrounds, I know that was the case for me and many of the people that I knew. And you know, we, we came from traumatic backgrounds and wanted healing. That's why we were there. That's why we were invested. And of course, we know now that many of the people who were raised in this community have trauma as well. So this trauma piece, yeah. I feel like, is huge. Like we're just a bunch of traumatized people.
0: One big complex trauma.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and trauma itself teaches you not to trust yourself. That's right. Um, like if you, you have a history of trauma and abuse, then you likely have been told that if something is happening to you, it's your fault. Or if you speak about it, it's your fault or it's your problem. And, I feel like that message was definitely compounded in the 3HO community because we were taught over and over again that if something felt off to us, it was the thing that was off was us. Yep. So it, that was just like always the message.
0: <laughs> that is so huge. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah, I think it was a huge influence in, in how all of us responded to things. Like when you look at like, Why did we respond that way? Like, I I think that's a huge piece that we were, you know, a bunch of traumatized people, um, probably lots of us. um, Well, I think uh, the devotional aspect you're talking
0: about is also just a key component, the devotion, the seven generations, but like all of the interwoven kind of mystical level of, of things interwoven to kind of keep you committed to this path. And then like you said, internalizing the problem as yourself Stay there, keep yeah. with that. So, you're doing this, you're really committed, <laughs> okay. you're getting yeah. letters, you're practicing Yeah. Down. you're doing all of the sadhana. You're, I'm guessing you're just a devotional student at this point.
1: Yeah, I just do it. I'm doing it. I'm, it's my whole life. And then in 98, um, I went into business with my first yoga teachers, a, a, a married couple who I still love very much. Um, we Went into business together to open our first yoga center in 98 and uh, we also um, started um, an ashram <laughs> and uh, like the the first generation people when they talk about ashram living it sounds kind of difficult and you know like um, people all cramped into a small space or you know not having much room and Ours was not like that. We had a very very cozy um, situation where uh, they got a house, a nice big ranch style house outside of the city. And we had a pool and a hot tub and everybody had their own room and I had my own bathroom. And so this is a pretty sweet (laughs) option. Sounds lovely. Um, And uh, we were, other people moved in from out of state. People came to Texas to, move in there and so we did sadhana together every morning and all of us were doing lots of extra practices um, and working at the yoga center so it was just like yoga and meditation all the time that was life and um sometime in there yogi bhajan told me to start doing 62 minutes of sat kriya so i was doing that uh 31 minutes in the morning and 31 minutes at night and then sadhana before sunrise and extra practices and we were always doing cleanses um I was still writing him letters every week and uh going to see him as often as I could going to New Mexico for when I could go to lectures or events and uh we also uh would go visit him at the airport because this was before 9-11 when you could go hang out with people who were having layovers uh, when he would be traveling sometimes he fly through um Dallas or Houston. And so we'd drive to these other cities and uh hang out with him during the layovers and you know eat food or massage his feet, whatever the case may be. Um, so we were doing that. Um and then for a while uh he had me doing the uh, troticum photo meditation for those who don't know it's a um black and white photo of his face with a very intense eye gaze and uh, you put the photo out in front of you and lock eyes with it and like meditate in that way so I was doing that every day too so I was doing a lot of things that were centered around him um, as were lots of us you know lots of us that was um, just how it was Mm -hmm. and uh, you know I wanted to do all the right things I wanted to be the ideal. I wanted to follow the best path, and I did really love Sikhism. Um, I still, like, there's a lot about Sikhism that's still in my heart, and I really appreciate and love, Um, and I loved Bana. I loved um, the the dress of the Sikhs, and I was super into it, and, you know, I wanted to, like, be a good Sikh, and marry a good Sikh, and raise my kids in the community and send them to MPA, the school in India, you know, like to do the path. Um, And uh, like Jimenez said in her her interview, um, for those of us who were uh, like young, like around the age of the generation people, but we were not raised in it, it, it was like a big compliment if somebody asked who our parents were because <laughs> it meant they thought we were second generation and uh the second generation you guys were really held up as like the ideal as like super solid because you've been raised in it and uh you know it was a compliment to us if somebody thought that or of course it was a compliment if someone asked if you were on yogi bhajan staff or something like that um yeah. so i was like i was wearing bana all the time i was super I loved the flow <laughs> Um and I like I went into debt uh, to to pay for every to pay for like the the trainings I was doing for going to New Mexico and even like jewelry because jewelry was a big signifier at that time I don't know if it still is but you know when I was in it like big gems and jewelry was like a big signifier and so I was like buying jewelry to <laughs> um that I couldn't afford to so like uh look the part, I guess um so I want to pause and
0: little... you know there were also I just want to pause you real quick yes say, what do you mean by signifier is this kind of what you're speaking to where the yoga student that is like you comes in becomes very devoted and then like you're saying kind of is considered um assumed as a second gen is that what I mean? Like a signifier as like important, a part of an inner circle, a part of a special group, and signifier by whom? Can you give us that?
1: Well, I mean, my my impression was that um that it that those kinds of things did make you uh more a part of things and you looked more a part of things and you were doing the things that um, that made you more included. That's That was my impression at the time. And I guess I kind of was looking at like what other people were doing and saying was helpful. I mean, of course there was the whole thing of like that, that the gemstones were helpful to you in some way. Um, well, that was all tied. Right.
0: That was tight. Yeah. What I hear you saying is a little bit of the element of like the haves and the have nots. And like you were wanting to kind of like be in kind of the echelon of like the ones who are noticed as opposed to what's been spoken about in the 3HO ethos around like the peasants, the one that are like the worker bees versus others. And that's an interesting thing because you're a part of a yoga center. So it's kind of like, even within yoga centers, that hierarchy that you brought up kind of shows itself.
1: Yeah. And I mean, honestly, like I was seeing that more in things like at solstice or at events when like the larger community was, um, was around and I was influenced by that. I would say that our yoga, yoga community in Austin was really pretty relaxed (laughs) and didn't have a lot of expectations. Um, but I interacted so much with the larger community that I really did um, take on a lot of that and try to represent it as fully as I could, um, whether I could afford it or not. Like I wanted to like fully represent it. Um, so that I think that's where Get I was getting the, it
0: mostly. Getting into like the KRI inner circle, like the higher ups as opposed to just the local area.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it was definitely more influenced uh, beyond, beyond local. I was like, uh, bringing it, bringing it back to the local. OK. <laughs> Suki just uh, showed me a cat. Sorry. <laughs> she opened my door and showed me a cat. Um, <laughs> um, also, there, there were like distinctions made for people, like whether you had been to India or not, whether you had taken Amrit or not. Um, and you know, so I I did those things too, uh, because I wanted to. Um, but it it also was, uh, you know, that thing of like trying to do it all. And I I did feel like no matter how much you did, it was never enough because there was always somebody who was going to judge you in some way or like pick apart what some piece that you're missing, like. I remember somebody asked me if I had been to India, and I said yes, and um, they were like, you only were there for a couple weeks, that doesn't count, that doesn't even count. And, um, you know, there were distinctions on like, whether you said Yogi Bhajan or Siddhi Singh Saib, like, do you, which, which name do you use, and, um, I one time somebody was saying, you know, there's, there's yoga people and there's guru people like Sikh people and you're just a yoga person. And I, in that case, I was like, well, they're both really important to me actually. But, um, but they were telling me like, no, you're not Sikh enough. You're just a yoga person. And so like, no matter what, what we did, there's always more like, do you read your bonnies every day? Do you, um, you have the right turban style? How's your pronunciation? Like, you know, people will even pick apart like your pronunciation. <laughs> um, so there was just a lot of judgment and it did feel like no matter how much you did, it just wasn't enough. Like it felt that way to me anyway um, and I think that's that's present in so many communities, like we as humans have a tendency to to judge each other pretty harshly in all kinds of circumstances. But I do think that's something that this community, I hope can learn learn more about and all, all communities really, that maybe we can uh, find ways to like judge each other less and like leave room for variation on who's around and how people engage in things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I do feel like that's an important thing to look at as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I want um, to speak a flag into that in that the the judgment like is so infused into the culture of 3HO. It's like mantra, you know, and no wonder because if it goes back to just the state of deprivation that everybody's been in, going back to historical trauma and also like what it really means to like, be a part of a teaching philosophy that basically again you're always at fault and you're never enough so it, it's feeding this culture of gaslighting it's always your fault it's always your fault and that breeds judgment because we're not actually feeling what we need we're projecting outward and becoming the all-knowing i know everything about you because we're actually blocking our own capacity to feel and that's actually just yeah. the state's repeating itself over and over again. As a child that grew up in this community, you know, all the adults being in that state as a child, you know, their state of conscious not enoughness, rushing, getting to sadhana, trying to be the perfect everything. I've realized as I've unwound trauma, I was absorbing that culture of conscious of not enoughness and judge others because I'm not willing to feel myself energy and it's taken me a long time to even have the courage to feel what's going on with myself instead of projected outward as judgment
1: yeah that's that's a huge piece of it and like that's a really good way to describe it like it is it is that you know it's pervasive in that community um
0: everywhere or at
1: least was it still <laughs> maybe is still is i don't know yeah um, yeah i like that you're just sharing from
0: your experience but i mean we know that these are themes that are still showing up or we wouldn't have full-on denier aspects and gaslighting happening in 1984 narratives still playing out in 2020 so we can kind of just put yeah. that aside that it's not still happening and hopefully people yeah. are more active in the community currently will come forth and share their lens because it does need to be talked about for us to heal it. So anyway, to get you off your story, I just wanted to commend you on that.
1: Um, Okay, I guess the next piece is just that at some point I told Yogi Bhajan that I wanted to get married. And um, he said he would arrange a marriage for me and that I should not chase men. I should not even smell them. Like, don't even be impacted by their scent. Um, and then that until he arranged my marriage, I was married to him. And at the time, um, I, you know, I, now I look at that, like, that's kind of a weird thing to say. <laughs> um, but at the time I think there it's, uh, probably like one of those things that made me feel special and i think that when there were things that made you feel special you just kind of accepted what it was and um Mm. so that's just kind of i just kind of accepted it like and i it didn't really mean much um but it it did uh i think at the time kind of make me feel like i hate saying this um (laughs) But like I was owned in some way um, mm. and uh, that until I was given to an arranged marriage, I was uh, taken. Um, so I just like didn't need to think about it. Um, wow. And at, at some point in there, I don't, the timeline for me has become a little fuzzy on like which things happened when, but Um. At some point, he told me that I would be arranged, my marriage would be arranged to an Indian family for a political benefit. Um, it was like very, very clearly stated that it was going to be politically beneficial. Um, and he said, white men can't commit. So I needed to be married to an Indian man. And uh, he said, don't, don't worry, you're going to, uh, live in a, a palace in India and you'll have servants and we'll come visit you. And, uh, then he and the secretaries began to talk amongst themselves about, um, which families were going to be coming from India to visit in the summer and who I could be introduced to maybe like, which ones would be, a, a useful arrangement, um, which ones would even accept a white woman. Um, So they were like negotiating these things. And I was just sitting there like kind of stunned. (laughs) I, I was kind of out of body and I couldn't really process it in the moment. And I think that's another part of the thing where I don't know that consent is really possible in those circumstances where, again, you have the person that you think knows what's best for everybody. And then there's that fear of influence whatever you know whatever that is that, that uh, might make you feel strange um being in that circumstance but but also that sometimes it was just like shocking information that you can't even mm-hmm. uh like you don't even know is coming like I had no idea that that was going to be um, suggested. suggested to me that, yeah mm-hmm. so it's you're kind of like shocked and then um like Ardas said in her interview, you never, never really know if, um, if what he was saying was like actually what was going to happen or if it would be something entirely different. It's like he might say this is what's going to happen and you'd like be in this whole thing about it, but then something entirely different would happen. Mm. And um, you also like never knew uh, <laughs> when you interacted with him if you were like going to get married off or get sent to live somewhere else or like be given a different job, like your life could just change in an instant just by interacting with him. And like, we all accepted that and we laughed about it. And it was definitely an exciting element to him, but it was also very destabilizing. Like we were always destabilized. And again, it's that thing of putting the power in his hands. Um, And that, in that case of the, the, uh, Political benefit of marriage. I didn't know if it was real or not, like when it was happening. I didn't know um, if he was just saying it to provoke something in me, like to, you know, make me realize something about myself, um, or if like it really was that I was, they were considering uh, arranging a marriage for me in that way. And when I told people about it, I could see that they, often were struggling with it. Like I could see the look on people's faces when I told them. And mostly it was just accepted though. I think there were like maybe one or two people that even talked to me about saying no, that said, Cable, you could say no. There was one person that was like, really encouraging me to say no, that was like, do not do that, say no to that. Um, But mostly it was just accepted. And I wasn't thinking of saying no, because why would I say no, when he knows what's best for me. Mm-hmm. And so I, wa- I wasn't thinking of saying no, but I also I didn't want to do it like I, I didn't. Um, and so I think that I, I kind of wanted to find a way to have some control or say over what happened. And I ended up suggesting your brother Mangala <laughs> as a consideration, and I I didn't really know him. I I had kind of intuition about him, and we had both in a minister's training course that was done over the phone. So like we would answer questions about Sikhism in this in this course. and, um, so I heard his answers, and then I had heard him read from the Guru, from the Sikh scriptures, and he reads really beautifully. Uh, so that had stood out to me, <laughs> um, and you know, that's what I, that's what I went on. You know, like I, I wanted to be a good Sikh. I wanted to be married to a good Sikh. You know, um, so you hadn't interacted
0: so, at solstice. These were just the small interactions that you had had over the um, in in limited community atmosphere. By the way, hearing Mangala read from yeah. the crew will change you internally. So I hear you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, he reads so beautifully. It's oh, really, beautiful. really beautiful. Um I think everybody everybody's impacted by that. That's right. um,
0: anyone who is it, it will be changed. So we yeah, hear you, Katie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, I, I also there I don't know how much this influenced me, but maybe it did, but um, People had suggested him to me as well. Like there were people kind of nudging me, like, "Hey, maybe, maybe Mangala." Um, so that was happening too. And um, and then I I heard this other piece to the story just a few months ago. Like after all these years, I never knew this part of it. Um, someone from the community contacted me and told me that one day she was with Yogi Bhajan and he asked her. Who um, like which of the which of the young men were single, and she thought of Mangala and she said his name, and then Yogi Bhajan said, "Okay, then it's done. Cable from Texas is going to marry him, and if it doesn't work out, it's on you." And all these years, she has like carried this this weight or this burden of responsibility for our marriage, and when we did get divorced. Um, all this time she's felt like some responsibility from it and all she did was answer a question mm. and so i got to tell her um you know that's not on you you just answered a question that's not wow responsibility you um, to her recently-
0: but that just also you know you talked to her in the last number of years
1: yeah that was just a just that was just a few months ago that i that she told me that story Whoa, I didn't know it until a few months ago. I never knew that happened. Um, and, you know, we had this, this idea that he was arranging things because of our destiny that would be for our, our highest destiny. And then, you know, there's things like this happening behind the scenes that are just like a random conversation, just like who popped into somebody's mind. Right. So Um, right not some magical formula that
0: he was picking to like that was destinies that was just part of the mythical mythologicalness of it but oftentimes it was just very circumstantial and random and i also want to speak to listeners that by this time when what cable's talking about is there's been many many years several decades of arranged marriages people actually came in like yoga students coming in kind of looking forward to that aspect it was kind of like "Ooh, you know so you're really painting a picture of the um the normalization of it and how people suggesting just kind of was all around around nudging for who to marry who yeah
1: um, yeah, I've, I've even heard other, other reports, even just in recent months of other things that were happening behind the scenes, other, like, um, somebody else contacted me and was like, Hey, did you know, they tried to arrange a marriage with us, <laughs> you know, between me and you. And I didn't know that either. So like there was, you know, like, you just didn't know who was trying to arrange your life. Um, but, um, I did in any case, I, I did end up emailing BBG, Yogi Bhajan's wife, and um, asking if Mangala might be a consideration uh, or somebody I should get to know. And then it wasn't long after that, that I got called to New Mexico for an appointment with Yogi Bhajan. And uh, when I was in the appointment, he called Mangala at work and uh, said, this beautiful girl wants to marry you. What's the problem? And, Mangala said there wasn't a problem that he wanted to get the advice, um, get Yogi Bhajan's advice, and Yogi Bhajan said, "Grab it," and um, and then like tell her. And he put him on the phone to me to tell me that we were going to get married, and that was it. Like we didn't know each other; we lived in different states. <laughs> um, and then uh, a, a couple of people have mentioned and their interviews our our wedding was the week of 9 11. it was a few days after 9 11 um, which was a very strange time and everybody was in mourning and a lot of people couldn't travel Um, some people still managed to make it to the wedding which is really sweet some people still worked it out Um, and we got married along with another couple because um, in the type of ceremony, uh, that we did in weddings, uh, multiple people could go through the ceremonial process at the same time and get married at the same time. So we got married along with another couple. And then after, uh, after the wedding, we went to meet with Yogi Bhajan. This is a like hostess, no? The, no, it was, uh, it was just an Española. Um, okay. it was, yeah i was in Espan- at the Good War in Española okay and um after after the wedding we met with him and he like made sex jokes he he like made this joke about how um we could all the two couples could be on honeymoon together and we could get rooms next to each other and listen to each other having sex through the walls and um this just shows like how i couldn't process things when he was saying stuff like i could not i in the moment i could not understand what he was talking about like i just couldn't even understand it like what could what could he possibly be meaning (laughs) you know like because i probably was trying to like reach for some other meaning other than what i what he was saying and mangala like had to explain it to me like no that's really what he was saying um And um, for a while, I didn't really know how how to work out the fact that I had ownership in yoga centers in Austin, but was married to somebody in Española. But the assumption uh, definitely was like that I would give up my life and come to Española. And I didn't give up my ownership in the yoga centers at that time, but I did move to Española, and I tried. (laughs) I tried to live there Um, but like it was like living in a fishbowl to me and I didn't really feel like I belonged and I had come from Austin where we had thriving yoga centers and um, we were in the process of opening up our third location and it just seemed ridiculous for me to be in Española when like we had all this stuff going on centers and Um, I was there, there in Espanol and I was like bored and depressed and I felt really alone. Um, and you know, we were two people that didn't know each other trying to like be married all of a sudden. And, you know, we, we tried, but it was weird. It was a weird circumstance. And I asked Yogi Bhajan how to resolve this. Um, and he had me meet with uh, some of the guys who were running the Dharmic businesses. And uh, there was some, some job that they offered to me in Española, um, but it wasn't something that I wanted to do. And it, I imagine it probably had crap pay since a lot of the things did. Um, but I remember the person I was talking to, he said, do you want to be a big fish in a small pond in Austin or do you want to be a medium fish in a really big pond um, in you know like the international scene and I think that was like probably one of the first times maybe the first time that I didn't do the thing that was expected of me I I didn't take that job I actually left Espanola and went back to Austin and worked with the yoga centers and uh even though I was married to someone who lived in Espanola, and we just lived in different states for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, But then at at some point we both lived in Austin and I did eventually sell my ownership in the yoga centers there, which is a different story I won't get into. Um, Then we moved to Phoenix and I directed the yoga center here for years and we had two kids that wanted nothing to do with any of this stuff like they never they want never wanted anything to do with the yoga not with the religion like they just like didn't want anything to do with it even from very young ages and some people in the community would tell me that i should make them and I did try to make them sometimes, but they just, they weren't having it, <laughs> these kids. Um, you know, they're very independent and headstrong. You know how they are. <laughs> yes, <she is. laughs> and I'm i am glad for that now. I'm glad that they um, could say no to things. And they actually, my kids helped me open up to the idea of doing things differently. They were actually a big part of my process because I, I saw that the one path that I had been imagining and visioning for a family, um, like it wasn't the only way to do it. Like they showed me that it was fine to do it a different way because they refused to do it the way that I had envisioned. So it actually like they, the kids helped me like break open my mind. Um, and I like through all of these these experiences, I worked with lots of teachers in different levels of the hierarchy. And for a while I worked for KRI um, compiling evaluations that the yoga students filled out on teacher trainers. And so through all of that, I saw like similar themes over and over again that didn't really seem to ever get addressed about teachers. Hmm. And so Hmm. I think that I feel like is really important to address is that the abuse of power um, didn't just happen with Yogi Bhajan. It was pervasive in the community. And it's something that a lot of teachers, you touched on this, a lot of teachers emulated it. It's kind of like a formula. And it was pretty common for teachers to want the same treatment as Yogi Bhajan and to want to be adored by yoga students, have all the nice things and be telling people what to do and be an authority. And then meanwhile, um, they're just people like they are people that maybe have some experience or some wisdom or some charisma, but they're just crazy people. Like people are crazy. (laughs) And you know, like there's the, the part of the oath, the teacher's oath, uh, I'm not a man. I'm not a woman. I'm not a person. I'm not myself. I'm a teacher. And like, that's to like become a a clear channel for the teachings, but I think it got like warped (laughs) like that, that, um, like people set aside their humanity or wouldn't admit their humanity and like we're held up as these ideals that, no, you're just a person, you're a person and sometimes you get it right. And sometimes you get it wrong. (laughs) Um, And then there's this this definite divide between the levels of teachers. Um, Again, that thing of you, like you had to be doing all the things, wearing the right clothes Mm -hmm. and, probably had to have money to be able to do that and to like go to the events and the training so that you made the right connections, knew the right people and um, could progress. Like you didn't, you just didn't progress in the same way if you didn't do those things, if you didn't connect with people in, in those ways and present in those ways. Like I saw it over and over again. I, I, I am grateful for the opportunities that I was given. And I do feel like I was given a lot of opportunity. Um, I know I have skills and that's part of it, but I also know it was, you know, because I did the things that you were supposed to do. Like I I looked the part and I did the things and I was given opportunities um, as well because of that, that other people didn't Like, like I saw it happen. Other people didn't get it the same way if they didn't do the things. And then there's the the piece, too, about the communication style.
0: I want to pause you real quick and um, ask you about the evaluations. What I heard you say is that you were reading evaluations that KRI was collecting from all sorts of teacher trainings running from different areas. And there were certain teachers that had like recurring themes, but that as an organization never got addressed
1: yeah yeah I mean I think it was it was often the thing of uh, you know teachers who you know, wanted to be on the pedestal and and have the students relate to them in that way and um, tell people what to do or you know, sometimes tell people what to do in really harsh ways that may not even really apply to them, but they were the teachers so they get to say it. That way, but I mean, I think a lot of it comes down to just like ego, (laughs) Um, like different stories of teacher ego and uh, like either the students could like adore them and think that they they knew what was right also or look at him and be like, I don't know about this guy, (laughs) you know, like, why does he want me to do all these things? Like and treat him like he's special, and you know. Um... Well, what I want to point out here is that
0: it's being written up on evaluations, and when there's enough themes showing up as an organization, it should be addressed. And there's also been stories of how, like EPS, the or the part of the organization where complaints can be given, you know. There were things that weren't addressed when complaints were given. So whether there's the evaluation side or whatever the course correction is to stop abuse of power, to stop hierarchy when teachers are put into these pedestal places and then wielding their power in manipulative, predatory ways, these things aren't being stopped historically because it's a part of the YB formula that's replicated. So it's a very complex thing to dismantle. So as a teacher trainer, someone who's involved in that inner circle, for KRI to get that information along the way and not necessarily dismantle, that kind of speaks to the permeating culture that continues to grow when people are in powerful positions and go unchecked.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I saw that over and over again. I know that there were some people that things were addressed with, um, but it seemed like very few people. <laughs> and, and even sometimes when it was addressed, it was like pretty light, lightly addressed. Right. Um, Give them a meditation. And, and then they yeah, I mean, I don't even, I don't remember like what the, what yeah, the yeah. things were but it didn't seem like it was much whatever it was um they were the same people were still doing the same things you know after that um and you know we had the the, the communication style that we were taught uh for yogi budget and for other teachers is the the um, poke provoke confront elevate uh, which i'm sure is useful in some settings, but I think that got like twisted and misused too, because you could excuse anything by saying like for Yogi Bhajan or other teachers that they were doing it to poke and provoke someone. So if it's, if it's uncomfortable, it's because it's, it's provoking. Because it's poking
0: Um, you instead of, no, it's called gaslighting. It's called victim shaming. It's called victim bashing, victim blaming. It's not right. And it's disconnecting us from our own knowing and truth. So it's a really important aspect of the teachings that have to get uh, dismantled or at least analyzed from a very personal and collective point of view.
1: Yeah, because people like to be total egomaniacs, do any anything and get away with it if they like just presented it in the right way or had like already established themselves in a certain role. Um, they could just kind of continue indefinitely on that. Um, And use
0: word salad as a way to explain it. You know, it's like you listen back to some of these lectures and they're saying nothing. They're saying a whole bunch of nothing. And when when teachers are getting into this kind of elevated, I know everything projection, it's like it is, where is the humanity? I can't feel you because you're talking a bunch of nothing. And that's a part of that poke, provoke, confront. When somebody addresses, hey, this doesn't feel right it gets spun back on that person as if it's their fault. And that's, again, interwoven into this kind of teacher hierarchy power dynamic, it infused or called enlightenment, or it's for the better good, or I saw it in your Akashic records and all of it's just a total ego trip.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's so much that's just bullshit. You know, it just is, and um, yeah. Um, I, I remember like in the, in the code of ethics, you know, there's all these, these things that are, you know, good ideas, (laughs) but how they're actually addressed if, if people aren't, uh, aren't like fulfilling them, um, like there's the one that's like as high as you can go, you have to be that, you know, have that much humility. And I feel like, you know, it's not. It's not actually hard to go high, whatever, whatever that means. Like in this case, I'm talking about like getting through a, you know, a hierarchy and like presenting as someone who's like high level or something. That's, you know, there's a formula for that. <laughs> um, but the humility piece is the hard part. Um, and I, I think that that's, that's present in all kinds of communities um, it's definitely like a, a whole thing and all kinds of yoga teachers from all kinds of traditions. Um, but it's very present in this community and it's really important to address it. <laughs> um, and then like the other piece of it too, is like the, the specifically with men using their power, um, in that position as a teacher, as a healer, uh, in all kinds of ways, but, know over and over again seeing it as like access to young women and again that's not unique to this community you know older men going towards younger women but that piece of that they were held in a position of trust is unique like that power dynamic is is uh really important (laughs) and uh you know i would see these guys like presenting as spiritual and uh, you giving guidance and definitely early on, I really believed it. I really believed that uh, they were uh, like spiritual people. And then if they like got creepy with me, it would, I would be confused. Like, like, that's not really what's happening. Right. And if I would talk to people and I, luckily I had friends in the community who would be like, no, that's inappropriate. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Like that feels weird to you because it's weird. <laughs> you know, um, so I'm grateful that there were people um, actually, Ardos is one of them who uh, in in uh, some cases like clued me in like, yeah, that feels weird because it's weird. Um, and it, so that, that was happening. Like individuals would, would say that, but not in a community wide way. And I, I had some examples um, that I there, I picked them because they're pretty, Minor and uh, they don't identify anyone I I I decided not to use names or identify people because um, I do want to leave room for people to have changed maybe some of them have Um, I know I would uh, act differently now than I acted 20 years ago so I want to leave room for that um, even though I know plenty of people have not changed Um, but anyway, I picked a few examples that are kind of general, and um, and I did have lots of sessions with lots of different people because I was all about healing, and so um, I saw so many different people that you know you can't identify anyone. <laughs> um, anyway, like the, a a thing I experienced repeatedly was like men who were in healer positions. I'd be having a session with them and they'd be saying nice, you know, nice things to me or giving me like guidance and then like turn it into trying to spend time alone with me or like trying to like get me to travel with them or uh, do, like do things alone with them after we had established trust. Um, and then get mad at me if I did not like when I didn't do it. So it would flip from this, like, Helpful healer person giving the young person guidance to like aggro man because he's not getting what he wanted. And I think there was like some entitlement in that for a lot of these guys. And um, one person, like in the whole session, he used to ask me questions about my sexual history. Like the whole session was that. And uh, then my path to healing that he, uh, you know, he felt was my path to healing was to explore the dark side of my sexuality and and learn to entice men and that was the advice Um, or you know there's like a a case where someone said we were going to get together for a meditation with other people and then nobody else was there it was just us and he like spent the whole time telling me how he had mastered the teachings on sexuality and knew how to pleasure women and you know I'm just like stuck there <laughs> I mean, with somebody like all of these people i i thought were um like trusted spiritual advisors and then it like you know went that direction um mm-hmm. and now like healing is still a big part of my life uh, but i'm i'm very selective about who i work with now um and i and i watch for all of these things i watch for and I, I want to encourage other people to yes. also watch for these things, like look for if the person has humility, if they're connected to their humanity, if they can admit when they're wrong, if they can um, like empower you without telling you what to do. And um, also like, how do they handle admiration? Um, how do they handle people like losing admiration at them? And then finally, especially if it's a guy, how does he handle the starry eyed 20 something women who they're interacting with? Like how how do they relate to the young women? So Mm. I watch all of that closely and I wanna encourage other people to to look at it closely too. And um, Oh, go ahead I, i'm astounded by the points you're making about
0: this this healer this healer teacher man scenario where he's kind of drawing in and the scenarios where it just kind of get flipped it's set up to kind of be the spiritual meditation experience and yet the language turns sexual or it's kind of like it's like using information that they might know about you and then kind of spinning it into kind of sexual innuendos that what that is, is it's a grooming, it's a predatory grooming process where the, the, they're feeling into what's the accessibility of this person in front of them. So cable, you're, you're really mapping out a predatory formula that I know has happened to far more yoga students and plenty of other people that were, um, a part of our community. But I've heard this among other among other people. So thank you for pointing this out.
1: Yeah, I mean it it felt to me like it was a fairly frequent occurrence anyway.
0: Very I mean, common. There were, I find it's way like, more common than than we can imagine within our community and and elsewhere, but specifically in our community.
1: Yeah, and i I wasn't hearing people talking about it very much. So it was confusing to me that I, I kept encountering it. And not expecting it like i still kept like not expecting it somehow but um and it definitely was uh present in my experience and uh, i i ultimately stopped teaching you know like all of these things influenced my my decisions to kind of start to separate from things but the definitely the the hierarchy piece and the teachers being on pedestals was really breaking my heart at a certain point. Like I, I just was heartbroken to see it over and over again. And I didn't want to be on a pedestal myself. I didn't want to feel separation between me and other people. Like I'm the teacher and you're the student and I know more and you know less. And like, I, I didn't want that dynamic anymore and I didn't want to watch it in other people. And like, Moni said in his um, in his interview like it can be hard to recognize the red flags as they're happening like right when it's happening you may not quite know what it is but over time it starts to add up and you start to see more but it can take a long time and it took me years and years it took so long and like I remember like even in the first teacher training course I think it was the first one that I ever taught in, there was a woman that came to my classes and uh, I encouraged her to do teacher training because she was really into it, into the yoga. And that was the next step, of course. Um, So she was doing teacher training. And at some point in that process, she contacted me and asked to meet with me. And she told me that she was going to leave the teacher training course and stop doing kundalini yoga because she had in uh, researched yogi Bhajan and, and seeing the allegations and the um, the lawsuits, and of course I just said what I had been taught and what everybody said. I was like, oh, those are false accusations. People just want money or to you know ruin his name because he's sharing teachings that are secret at you know at great risk to himself. He's trying to help other people, and there's just all these people who are out to get him. And uh, of course she listened to that and she was like, "Uh, no. (laughs) And she said that she thought it was a cult and that she wanted me to leave it. She was like, you should leave too. Like, I wanna tell you this information so that you can, you know, think about it. And at the time I was just like, that's so sad that she doesn't get it. that's so sad that she believes that stuff and that she's leaving because she doesn't she doesn't get what the truth is and um I think about that now and I'm so touched that you know she could have just left just left for herself but she like made the effort to try to present the information to me and to try to help me and there's again that thing of like teacher student like i was in the position of the teacher who knows things but then there's this woman who's like trying to help me (laughs) so um i didn't get it then it took me a long time um but i guess like that part of that is to say that i know it can take a long time and for people who are still wrestling with it like i know it's like a mind-bending process and it's painful to look at this stuff. It's really painful. And I just want to say for for those that had a good experience, like your good experience still exists. (laughs) Um, Admitting that, that all these other things happened doesn't mean you didn't have a good experience. But you having a good experience also doesn't mean that all this other stuff didn't happen. So it, again, there's that thing of we have to hold it all. I think it can be true that it saved people's lives in some cases, and it can be true that it destroyed people's lives in some cases. Like those both can be true at the same time. Yeah. Um, and I was as I was like thinking about all this stuff, a, a quote from Brene Brown uh, popped up that was don't shrink, don't puff up, just stand your sacred ground. And I feel like that's what we have to do in telling our stories, like just tell them the best we can with what we know right now, like don't hide it, don't get defensive, just tell your story and let's listen to each other and let's reconsider and let's let it all be revealed. Mm Um, that's what I have.
0: <laughs> wow. I'm kind of like, i um, just feeling all the shivers of all of the layers and points that you've made up. I mean, you've shared some violation stories, but kind of wrapped in a little bit of a bow as bullet points. And I appreciate that. It just shows the level of reflection of how you're trying to like hold how you've gotten to this point, and yet now with it opening up on a much larger scale, you're able to now revisit your experience with with new lenses for the same things that you thought you had reconciled only to bring it all back up again in a different way.
1: Oh Yeah, yeah, it's like it continues to come up in new ways over and over again, like especially this last year. Like as, as I started transitioning out of things when I did like a decade ago or whatever, yeah. um, I still was like, it's just me. I'm still like internalizing a lot of it. And I didn't want to like call much out, like not publicly. I would like talk to people individually, but like, I didn't want to ruin it for anybody, you know, cause there are still a lot of people getting a lot of benefit from it. And, you know, plenty of people that thought I was, um, a disappointment or, you know, lost or misguided because I had left. But, you know, I was I, I it still took a long time to uncover more layers where I was like, OK, like, I'm willing to talk about this. I'm willing to, you know, say the things that I saw that were messed up. And of the things that I talked about, like there's an ocean more <laughs> there was a, a fast ocean, more of things that, mm-hmm. that need to be addressed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just want to
0: point out that when gaslighting is kind of the norm for communication, and we constantly f- have been taught that everything's our fault, it, it really sets us up to be um, uh, used, you know, using healing or teachings as a way to actually um, m- manipulate and get access. and And this is where violation happens. You know, it's, it's just like a repeating formula of not being able to feel what's right for ourselves and giving power away. And then people in positions of power that you foster and use that for their own predatory ways. It makes me really sad to hear about this healer aspect you're bringing up. And yet it's so common, like even growing up in the community, the amount of access to say chiropractors or healers, or you automatically assume these people are safe, but it's not true. Communities like ours are filled with, predators and then when when they're healers or you know or like my father or other you know men yoga teachers in the community they have the healer wise man persona in any community they're going to and they get to use that and it's like this access point to the young naive seeker
1: yeah yeah
0: so if you're listening to this you know it's about strengthening our own internal grounding and feeling our humanity and really grounding back into our bodies and not doing practices that disconnect us from our humanity but rather ground us back into the body
1: yeah and remembering that every person no matter how wise you think they are or um you know impressive they are they're a person (laughs) There, a person.
0: Yes, yes. How um, in your transitioning, kind of like as you were filtering out in the last ten years or so, um, did you just immediately stop doing Kundalini yoga? You went from being teacher trainer to not, or was it like a slow transition to other types of therapies or, or body movement? Or can you give us a little lens into that as a teacher?
1: Yeah, it it kind of started transitioning. I, I was still working with yoga centers I kind of started transitioning more to like prenatal yoga which wasn't really kundalini um and I was like kind of evaluating things and then as I as I left my career in yoga centers I I went into other things um I went into midwifery for a while and like as a practice, I started doing ecstatic dance, which was really, has been really helpful for me and um, various other other healing approaches. Um, over the years, like I've just explored different things and, and I'm, I'm kind of always on the lookout for, you know, the red flags and um, in any, community i would say any community i've interacted with there's people who are are manipulating and um you know spiritual superior superiority is present in all of them i would say appropriation is present in a lot of them like these issues are i see them over and over again um but now i i uh, move away from the the situations that have those elements and i'm just like very selective about, about who I'll even consider working with.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, for all of this to come out in 2020, and you had basically been filtering and processing a lot of these internally, these these ideas or hierarchy or, or abuse situations within your own awareness of being in the community and then choosing to move a little bit out it, it must've felt a bit validating on some level, like to be like, Oh my God, my hunches, the things I knew were happening
1: and far more than I knew. Yeah, yeah it it was it like, it really clarified a lot for me because like I said, I had still been kind of internalizing a lot. Um, even as I was getting more clear on things, I still like had that piece. And, you know, I probably still do in some ways, like it's, it's a hard thing to root out. Um, I'm sure I'm gonna uncover more layers where I realize I've been doing that to myself. Uh, but it was really validating and and helpful and um healing for me once stories started coming out that I was like, oh God, that's what it was. <laughs> like, you know, like I I I knew that was there, you know, I could some of the things and some of the things I was just completely shocked by. Um, but, but there were these elements that I was like oh thank god somebody's finally talking about it and we could admit that that's happening now so yeah I appreciate all of that
0: mm-hmm. yeah that it just finally the break of sight We don't
1: have to pretend anymore
0: <laughs> exactly we can start talking about yeah. being in plain sight much less the tsunami of things many of us didn't know but always felt so yeah, thank you for this. Thank you for mapping it all out and giving us such um, a strong structure to to navigate ourselves in the, the this great unwind <laughs> and untangling. Yeah, thanks for the
1: opportunity to talk about it. <laughs> um,
0: do you want to share with us before we transition into the into your song? Um, Is there anything else that you want to share with listeners or that you want to wrap up to share about your story or where you're at with it all today?
1: I I feel complete for today.
0: (laughs) I actually have one question. Early on, you painted this devotional connection with Yogi Bhajan. So what happened with that once you got married and kind of give us a picture to that and then something around that would help
1: I mean, I still, I think I was still, I, I held him in kind of a devotional role. I defi- It definitely shifted as I, you know, got married and, um, and his, his interaction with the community changed too, as he got older and, um, and, you know, towards the end of his life, we just didn't see him that much. At least I didn't, um. So that that did change, but like my my understanding of my of the teacher student relationship and like what he was and what was happening um, really changed after he died. Like it 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 didn't change while he was still living. Like it took it took time after he was already gone before I could even. Evaluate it in a different kind of way. Hmm.
0: And did you feel like you you started your relationship with him? Like, did you start not relating to him as you transitioned out, or was that only in two thousand twenty that you kind of like fully saw through and saw who he was?
1: No, it had started changing when my when my relationship to the teachings in general had changed. Um, I just wasn't speaking about it um because it still was very much like everybody saw him that way like even 10 years ago when I was going through change it was still like everybody held him in that and I was going through changes with it personally but I I wasn't talking about it because um like, it didn't feel like anybody was open to it. It didn't feel like anybody was open to any other possibility. Sure. That makes sense. That makes sense.
0: I was just curious because of just the early start in terms of your interaction and kind of this like close sphere you had with them or level of connection at some point. Um, cause I had always gotten a feeling that he was you know, not fully who he said he was, but I had no idea he was actually like sadistically abusing our women or our kids. I, I, I did know there was definitely hypocrisy and incongruency, but I, <laughs> uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, I had no idea. I had no idea, um, about that stuff with him at the, at the time, like, I, I really didn't start questioning things until, like he had he had been dead for a while when i was really able to question it yeah i can appreciate that and how much
0: the easy parroting story of oh no you know that's not true or you know you just automatically go to this unconscious narrative and and when did i ever ask oh where did i get that narrative from whose narrative is that anyway that it was just a regurgitating kind of like we yeah. have special we have a special knowledge that Indian Sikhs didn't have. Like it was just a parroting. It wasn't something I actually believed. It was like that is so yeah. stop to actually think about the thing you're speaking. You're like, what if that were not true? What if the person who told me that made that up, you know, and starts this slow, mm-hmm.
1: it's
0: like pulling a, a thread on your sweater. You're like, <laughs> no yep. idea what you're gonna unravel. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> On that note, introduce us to your song, please. (laughs)
1: Um, My my song is Losing My Religion. Um, I do want to say that I was very tempted to pick another song. (laughs) I was tempted to pick um, Girls in the Hood by Megan Thee Stallion (laughs) because of just the very first few lines, which if anybody's interested, they can look that up. But I did not pick that. (laughs) Um, I just let myself be amused by it, but um, I picked Losing My Religion uh, because, I mean, that's the song Losing My Religion, I think is about like being really into someone and um, wondering if they feel the same about you and did I say too much or did I, you know, not say enough? So that's, I like that meaning about it, but that's not why I picked it. Um, I picked it because like the words literally losing my religion Um, I, I listened to that song, uh, when I started going through changes with things, like when I stopped wearing a turban and cut my hair, like at that time, I wasn't planning to lose my religion. I wasn't planning to let go of so much. I just was like gradually going through changes. Um, but you know, like some people stopped speaking to me when I cut my hair and, Um, it shifted like how I related to the community. And, um, so then I, you know, I, I, I gave up my, my career. I started going through changes personally, my relationship with the community changed, um, where I didn't know if I, who I was welcome with and who I wasn't. So that kind of fell away. And then, um, the religious aspects started falling away and then eventually we got divorced and that fell away like all of these aspects that were part of my identity just over a period of years fell away and somehow it became like amusing to me to listen to the song losing my religion (laughs) um like it, it it made me laugh but it was also it was funny but it was also sad but i don't know i i i kind of amused myself with that song when I was going through the changes and you know not intending to lose my religion but I I lost my religion. And there you have it. Many other things. So um that's why I picked that song. (laughs) Well thank you. Thank you for sharing.
0: And for copyrighted purposes we'll only listen to a little bit, but you can listen to the Uncomfortable Conversations playlist on Spotify. So the link will be provided. Here we go. you for that song thank you for your story
1: cable really appreciate you being with us today you thanks for the opportunity and thanks to everybody who uh, is willing to listen and share their own experiences
0: yeah thank you to everyone listening again this concludes another episode of the uncomfortable conversations podcast the Untold Stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga Community. If you'd like to contribute to this podcast, you can make a one-time or monthly donation at gurunishan.com slash uncomfortable conversations. And if you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, please send an email to gn at gurunishan.com. Thank you so much for listening. Please like share review and subscribe to the podcast and please pass it on to someone that you know from our community or um, that was in our community that needs to hear these stories thank you again and we'll talk to you on the next one